Good morning. Continue our study through the five solas of the Reformation. Just as critical for us today as it was for the Reformers. So let's open in prayer. This morning we look at Solo Christo or Solus Christos by way of a number of selected, selected texts. In the 16th century, uh, the church councils under the authority, the, uh, authority of the Pope um, d- determined the amount of authority that the scriptures had and what the word of God meant. And according to them, it was grace plus works. It was faith plus sacrament, liturgy, and ritual. It was scripture plus papal authority. And it was Jesus plus Mary and a plethora of saints. The reformers wanted to make clear that the solas alone and nothing else is required for a proper understanding of God and his salvific plan for his people. And by, by beginning with sola scriptura, we're driven but to cling to solo Christo, uh, Christ alone. Amen? I mean, is there salvation from eternal punishment apart from anyone but Christ alone? The Lord Jesus Christ alone? Well, Scripture alone provides the explicit answer to the crucial question, which Jesus himself answered in John 14, saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 3.36 is just as clear. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. There is no other Savior but Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Saved from what? Saved from God's wrath. Be saved by God, from God. That's salvation. His judgment, eternal judgment. Now, the truth of Christ's um, exclusive claims is the very heart um, of the Bible itself. After Christ's resurrection, he opened the scriptures to two hopeless, wandering disciples on the road to Emmaus, where he said, uh, the scripture says in Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus is the Christ. He is prophet, priest, and king. Christ alone is the prophet who reveals to us the Father. Christ alone is the priest who reconciles us to the Father by way of the sacrifice of himself. And he is the one who continually intercedes for us. He is our intercessor. We have access to God because of the one and only intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God. And Christ alone is king who subdues us to himself 
who rules us, who defends us, and conquers all his enemies, as well as all of our enemies, ultimately. He's prophet, priest, and king. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So redemption for any man, woman, or child resides in Christ alone. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You are the righteousness of God by way of Christ's imputed righteousness. So justification comes by way of grace alone, sola gratia, and is ours by way of faith alone, sola fide. So it's essential that the ground of our being declared righteous by God is due to the work of solo Christo, Christ alone. See how it all connects? So we urgently need to hear, I mean, uh, the church in our day urgently needs to hear solo Christo in, in a day of pluralistic theology. Many today, that is liberal church people, they call themselves church people, question the belief that salvation is only by faith in Christ. And the end result is, as it's been famously said of liberalism, uh, they proclaim and worship a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Never hear the bloody cross preached. An atonement by way of one and only son who was forsaken. Now, every Easter, there are several magazine covers, as you are well aware, that carry some iconic image of Jesus with the heading, Who Was Jesus? Was he the Son of God? Is he the Son of God? Did he really resurrect? See that every year. Are you not? Year after year after year. You have articles in, in network commentators. I don't care if it's CNN or Fox, whatever you're a fan of. Okay, just because you watch Fox doesn't mean that you're a Christian. <laughs> Amen. Many people who write books about Christ aren't in Christ, according to their skewed theology. So anyway, you have uh, articles and network commentators. They'll, they'll, tri- they'll, they'll typically conclude uh, that Jesus taught many things that when applied, when applied, such as the golden rule, that makes good people better. Now there's a lie from the pit of hell for you. And then they add him to a list of religious zealots from throughout time self-proclaimed prophets of history as one of the ways to God. As though he and others are equivalent, leading to the same way, down the same road, 
through the same ever-widening, always-accessible gate. Jesus talked about gates. Jesus talked about roads. He said there's one way, and he talked about ways. There is a way that seems right to a man, leads to destruction. There's a way that's narrow. There's a way that's straight. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to what? Destruction. That's the way of religion. And those who enter by it are many. So obviously, it can't be the same, Jesus and others. No one ever argues that capitalism and socialism are the same thing. Amen? No one ever argues that a monarchy and a democracy are the same thing. You never hear that. Or that male and female are the same. Well, at least no one in their right mind today. (laughs) They're going to try that. They're actually trying it. But when it comes to religion or, or ways to God, by some strange phenomenon of the imagination, people are willing to say that Islam and Hinduism are the same or that Christianity and Judaism are the same. Now, the world no doubt talks uh, a lot about the commonality uh, of religions, that, that truth and religious sincerity you know, are relative. As though all roads of sincerity will ultimately get you to God. Now, we ought to expect that from the unbelieving world. Amen? Obviously. You follow through with their philosophy, and it leads to a justification by way of death. Amen? Everyone goes to a better place. Now, what's most dreadfully sad is that many of these same arguments and discussions are being raised within the church. making the faith of the visible church weak and ineffective. Okay, that is what Christians are supposed to believe about faith, about salvation, about Scripture, about the Christ of Scripture, are instead swayed by every wind of doctrine that blows in from the outside. It's pathetic. Christian values in America, I only speak about America here, um, at one time shaped the moral consensus of our culture. Because the church's influence actually served as the conscience of culture. But needless to say, when the church's ideals or, or mores or their politics reflect the world and not scripture, you can be certain that her theology has already been persuaded by outside pressure. For when the church doesn't know what to stand for or what to stand on, how can it ever possibly expect to have influence on the world around us? I know professing Christians who are more enamored and consumed with with liberal political agendas and philosophy than they are the word of God. Although they use a lot of theological verbiage. 
Now, they're rather awkward people. They're difficult to have a sincere, in-depth conversation with. Specifically, when it comes to properly interpreting the Word of God. They're easy to recognize because they're controlled by the comforts of their opinions rather than the Word of God. So a big red flag should be waving when you run into these kinds of scriptures. And they even go so far as attempt to, to shape scripture to their own bent views. They actually take scripture, twist it, and try to lay it over their false views. And it will ultimately lead to a different Christ. Now, it's the norm for unsaved people to hate to be told what to do or how to think. That's the norm. So, naturally, they will attempt to justify their own worldview philosophy based on emotion or what they think God is like. The problem in our day, once again, is that many professing Christians also want a Christianity or a Christ or a Bible that is molded by their own emotions or philosophy and not the Word of God itself. I've met people who profess to be Christians who have issues with some doctrine or some text and they disagree with it and they don't know how to manipulate it to... to Um, allow it to mean what they want it to say. So they run to the internet and they find some fruitcake or nutty professor who's already developed a view to substantiate their own deviation. So they spend time memorizing it. And then if you've been engaged with them, they'll typically write you an email and regurgitate the comments of the nutty professor. These are not people you want to hang out with. They're unteachable, and they are part of the wayward church. Therefore, you do not want them in yours. At the time of the Reformation, the five solas made it possible for a wayward church to once again focus on the word of God and what's expected of God's people to know in order to live freely. To remain reacquainted or to be reacquainted and remain acquainted with the teaching of scripture. I mean, what kind of testimony is it? when the church is arguing who Christ actually is and what he has done. Much of the professing church today teaches or preaches. They don't, they, I wouldn't call it preaching. They teach a Jesus minus the wrath of God and minus the threat of hell. That all sincere roads do lead to heaven. Jesus is one of the ways, one of the truths, and one of the lives. And their worship is incredibly man-centered. Where, as John Piper puts it, man the creature is large and God the creator is small. So to say that the church needs reformation is a gross understatement. Now you sit here, you're in a healthy church, praise God. You're like, well, really? Do we really need to hear this? Yes, you do. 
Yes, you do. Now, there have been many voices over the past few decades screaming for a modern reformation. And praise God for them. Men with large platforms. And that is where the solas are so very helpful. The trouble is that the urgency isn't there for most professing churches. Either because they're, they're not concerned about biblical truth or they're blatantly blind and naive to the need. Would Paul tell Timothy, young Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves. They will seek out until they find teachers for themselves to suit their own passions. They'll go from church to church to church until they find him or her. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Jude tells us, contend earnestly for the what? Faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. So there's a cost for contending for the faith. There's a cost for truly preaching the word. And if we desire to be faithful to God's word, getting along with everyone is impossible. It doesn't mean we're unloving or callous or coarse. It's just that getting along with everyone's impossible. Who claims Christ? Oh, I'm a believer too. Well, let's hear about him. In case you don't know, we're not here trying to gain a following. It's going to have to be a matter of God calling people here. We don't go after people with offers because they're gifted or they have this or that to offer. Because when you do that, Typically, those people become your biggest headache, and you have to spend all this energy trying to get them to leave. (laughs) People have shown up here, and I cringe inside because I know their past, and I know that they have this, this long list of problems that they had with every church they've ever been to, and you just hope that they won't seek membership. Because I'll tell you, with some people I've wondered, are we talking about the same Bible? Are we talking about the same Christ? You see, the church of the Middle Ages spoke about Christ. There's no doubt about that. For any church that failed to do that could hardly claim to be Christian. So you've got to mention him somewhere, somehow. But the medieval church had added rich ritual, religious rituals and human merit to the work of Christ. So it was Christ Plus, it was no longer Christ and his atonement alone. Today you hear weird things like, I believe in Jesus, okay? I believe in Jesus, but we, we need to coexist and accept other sincere faith-based systems of belief as legitimate and realize that we haven't cornered the market on truth. You heard that? Or something like that? Others say, doctrine dogs me down. Thinking too much takes away from my spirituality. 
Well, then how spiritual are you? And then, of course, there's those who, who say, all I have to do is believe in Jesus and live my life any way I want. God's truth is paramount. And Christ alone, being the only one who saves, is under attack. One Presbyterian minister, in the midst of a conversation about world religions, in, in, in the setting of a convention with other pastors, actually said, what's the big deal about Jesus? Okay, suggesting that there are other lords for other people. This dude's no preacher. He's no minister. True ministers of the gospel don't raise these kind of cynical, non-believing questions. What's the big deal about Jesus? Well, all true believers will answer that by Christ alone comes salvation. That's what's the big deal. Joel Olstein was asked by Oprah, priestess Oprah, is Jesus the only way to God? Now, I'd never heard this one before. Quote, I believe that Jesus is the way to God, but there are many paths to Jesus. You know. You don't know how Jesus would reveal himself to somebody. I do, because the Bible says how he does. Matthew 11, verse 27. All things have been delivered to me, said Jesus, by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Does this guy read the Bible? Now, that's one of the many claims of Scripture that says Jesus is the object of saving faith. B.B. Warfield, he wrote, quote, The saving power of faith resides thus not in itself, but in the Almighty Savior on whom it rests. End quote. Verse 27, he says, All things have been delivered up to him. Jesus says he is co-ruler with his Father. And everything is his, and no one knows Jesus except the Father, nor, he says, does anyone know the Father except the Son. In other words, as the second person of the Trinity, no one can know the Father like the Son. Because they are one in essence and nature. That's theology 101. Jesus said, no one knows the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. In other words, unless I reveal the Father to the individual, he will not and cannot know who the Father is. The only way to know God rightly is to be known by God through Jesus Christ, his one and only Son, solo Christo. He alone is the object of true saving faith. He alone is the conduit, if you will, between us and the Father. He's the only mediator. No other path, no other way. He is the gate. He's the way. He's the road. And it's interesting, the words here, to know, 
or, or, or be known speaks clearly of the salvation that comes through God alone to his people, to know and to be known. You know him because you're known by him. He initiates it all. That's why all of his truth must be proclaimed. The whole council must be preached. Foolish people will say, if God is sovereign in salvation, there's no reason to mention hell or judgment. Well, that's nonsense talk. Because that's what Jesus saves sinners from. So, verse 28 of Matthew 11, which we're all familiar with, can only be understood in the context of verse 27. Okay? It says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you what? Rest. Now, his hearers would have understood that language to be covenantal language. He will reveal the Father to whom he wills and then give them rest, relationally, eternally. For he alone gives faith. Providing eternal rest. He's the only one that provides atonement, beloved. Christ alone provides atonement through a blood sacrifice. Scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Look at John 1. John the Baptist... Verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for his purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The Holman translation puts it like this. I have seen and testify that he is the son of God. Or this is that son of God. Because many were claiming to be the son of God. So John makes a distinction pointing out that one. Since many were claiming to be Messiah. So he is, verse 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Under the old covenant, as you know, a lamb would be sacrificed for the atonement of sins for God's people. And then the priest, you know, he would symbolically place the sins of the people on the lamb and then slaughter the lamb. Be a goat, place his hands on the goat, the scapegoat, and be driven into the wilderness taking away the sins of the people. And then the slaughtered lamb's blood would be spilt upon the judgment seat. So here, in fulfillment of that, 
is that lamb. That one. The only one. Chosen for the specific task of sacrifice. Atonement for God's people. Sacrifice to die for his elect, God's elect, to as many as he wills to reveal himself and his father. Amen? Amen. Now turn to John 10. Now Jesus is speaking of himself. In verse 11 of John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for who? The sheep. He knows and is known by his own sheep. Notice verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And the sheep that he comes for hear his voice. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. What does he give them? Eternal life. Notice. Okay, they're never going to be snatched. Verse uh, 28. I give them eternal life. How long is that, by the way? That eternal life business? It's pretty long. It's forever. It's called eternal life because it's eternal. So if someone who's truly saved, can they lose their salvation? No, because it's eternal. The question is, as we'll see in the sermon today, you can walk away having never been saved. That's the difference. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Notice what he says about the Father. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Why? Because they're one. Jesus' hand, the Father's hand, they're one. Notice the sheep are first the Father's. They're given to the Son. He lays down his life for these sheep. They're kept in the hands of the Father and of the Son. No sheep for which Christ died will perish. Verse 28. Now, notice, in addition to that, Jesus makes the implicit explicit. In other words, those who don't come to faith were never his own sheep. Jump back to verse 26. He's speaking to the unbelieving Jewish leaders of the day. Verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Notice. He did not say you're not part of my flock because you do not believe. No. He says you do not believe because you're not part of my flock for which he lays down his life. Okay, that's called definite atonement, by the way, which limits the atonement, which limits Christ's death on the cross to his sheep. His elect, synonymous terms, sheep, his elect, his flock. Because he is the one He is the only one of whom Isaiah speaks. It says, he was wounded for our transgressions. 
was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. That's spiritual healing, not physical healing. Everyone in Africa, they have pharmacies. By his stripes, we are healed pharmacy. Truth. (laughs) Word. (laughs) Dr. Van Horn takes photos of all this crazy stuff. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So just like the priest of the Old Testament, God placed upon Christ all the sins of his people, his sheep, his elect, his flock from throughout all of the world, from throughout all time, including Joseph and his family that we're studying about. Those bikers. (laughs) I'm a biker. That's why I say that. From Adam to the last redeemed sinner who will be brought to saving faith, he atoned for. And he's the only one that is atoned for sinners. Christ alone is that lamb who alone atones for sin and through whom is the only way to the Father. The centrality of Christ is the foundation of the Protestant faith. Martin Luther said, Jesus Christ is the center and circumference of the Bible. Again, Jesus Christ is the center and the circumference of the Bible. That's why I wonder when I talk to these people, what Jesus are you talking about? Meaning that he who is and what he did in his death and resurrection is the fundamental content of the scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, There's a path leading to the promised seed, Jesus Christ, fulfilled in him alone. That's what we're seeing in the Joseph narrative, amen? We see the path being paved by way of a promise. They're not faithful. I mean, they've been given faith, but it's God who's ultimately faithful who grants them the faith to persevere by faith. According to his grace. Zwingli said, quote, Christ is the head of all believers who are his body, and without him, the body is dead. That's so rich. Shall I read it again? 
Christ is the head of all believers who are his body. And without him, the body is dead. Christ plus anything? Or Christ along with anyone? Or any other belief? Any other ritual? Was the most basic of heresies as the reformers rightly perceived. So the Reformation motto, Solo Christo, was formed to repudiate this grave error. Affirming that salvation has been accomplished once for all by the mediatorial work of the historical Jesus Christ alone. Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, it's not his last name. He is the Christ. He's the promised one. He is the Savior. So his sinless life in substitutionary atonement alone satisfies the Father for our justification. To be declared righteous, to be declared free from all blame. And any other gospel that fails to acknowledge that or denies that is a false gospel that saves no one. In anyone who preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all. Solo Christo.